The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Quick prayer. Let's ask God's help. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One more time, please. Return to your feet. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning as we take... I believe, God willing, this will be our last Sunday morning to take a break away from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So as we come together to this final Sunday morning of Advent, having spent much time over these last three weeks considering not just the coming of Christ, but who is this Christ who has come? Not just the advent, but the incarnation. And you probably remember that week one, we went to John's second letter and we considered there why Christology matters. Why must we seek to be as biblical and true in our thoughts, in our words, in our worship towards Christ as humanly possible. Remembering that it's a matter of separation, that you're to have nothing to do with those who don't claim the Christ of the Bible, that you're not to greet them, you're not to even to welcome them into your home, lest you participate in the evil that they perpetrate. Then the second week we came back and we looked at Hebrews chapter two and we considered why our savior, why our redeemer had to be fully man 
Why he had to be like us in every way, save and except for sin. That was, of course, so that he could be everything that man failed to be. Everything that Adam and Moses and David and you and I have failed to do, that he might be our rightful representative. Bringing many sons to glory as he now reigns at the right hand of the Father on high. But not only this, but that he could take our place as a rightful substitute, propitiating, appeasing, and satisfying the wrath of God on behalf of his people. That now, even now, he reigns as the God-man, still like us in every way, save and accept sin. The glorified God-man who stands there as our great high priest, not despising us because he bore up under temptation where we failed, but merciful and gracious, willing to receive us in all our weakness at those very moments of, of greatest need. And then last week, you'll remember that we came and we looked to the Old Testament, we went to Genesis 22 and considered there why the, why the Redeemer, why the Savior had to be fully God. We saw the picture there of Father Abraham, his willingness to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his beloved son, his only son, Isaac. And we heard those words from Father Abraham as he said, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. And we saw as that ram, it died. What is the precious word there? The ram died instead. He died instead of Isaac. But we know that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sins of man. Because sin is an infinite evil. Because of the value and the majesty and the worth and the beauty of the God against whom we have sinned, the payment for that sin must restore the honor that's been taken. And therefore, only the infinitely worthy Son of God could make that payment. He had to be fully God, as well as fully man. And so, I thought this morning, what do we do? Do, do, we, do we go further into our exploration of why he had to be the God-man? Do we point to further passages that talk about what it means for him to be fully God and fully man? And where I settled in my heart is that it might be a good idea for us just to be in the presence of the God-man. Now we know that all scripture comes by the spirit of Christ. And we know that God is always near to us in his spirit anytime his word is spoken. That Christ is here on every Sunday morning speaking to us and coming to us and strengthening us and coming in grace towards us every time his word is faithfully proclaimed. And his people are receiving it in faith. But there's something different about the gospel narratives. There's something precious. Now, you know I'm not a red-letter Bible guy. I think that that unnecessarily and unhelpfully at times takes the words that Christ spoke by his own mouth and elevates them among, above the ones that he spoke through his prophets. But there's something about being in the gospel narratives. That's why so many churches... Their pattern will be that all throughout the year, no matter what they're working verse by verse through on Sunday morning, at some other time during the week, whether it's Sunday night or Wednesday night or some other night of the week, they're always working through one of the gospel narratives together. Because it's precious to be there witnessing the ministry of our Lord. In addition to that, I can tell you as a preacher, they're really fun to preach. They almost preach themselves. And so we come this morning to a well-known passage, one that's surely familiar to all of you. It's one that's recorded in all three of the synoptics. We find it here in Mark 2, find it in Luke 5, we find it in Matthew 9. 
It's the story of Jesus healing this paralytic. Now, even though we're very early in Mark's gospel here in the second chapter, we know that Jesus' earthly ministry has already begun in earnest. We, we've already heard the, uh, John the Baptist pointing to Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've already heard the Father's voice from heaven at Christ's baptism as he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We've already witnessed Jesus as he goes out and is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Again, bearing up under temptation at every place where you and I have failed. We've already witnessed him turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. We've witnessed his first cleansing of the temple at the Passover. We've witnessed him calling the first of his disciples and beginning his preaching ministry. Now, now, the immediate context right before this passage that we read this morning and the end of Mark chapter one, we see Jesus cleansing a leper. And we remember that news of Jesus healing work, news of him cleansing this leper, it spread far and wide. So much so that Mark tells us that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Something I missed back when I first preached Mark. I saw it this week for the first time. The picture of this leper who couldn't come around people because of his uncleanliness. Anywhere he did go, he had to proclaim to the world, unclean, unclean, lest anyone come too near. He couldn't come into the towns. He had to stay in the desolate places. But now because of his encounter with Christ Jesus, he was free to come into town. And Christ Jesus was stuck out in the desolate places. But this didn't hinder his ministry at all. We read here in verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, it's interesting that they say that Jesus was at home in Capernaum. Isn't he Jesus of Nazareth? Is it Nazareth his home? And yes, certainly it is. After the cleansing of the temple that we read about, we, we know that Jesus left Jerusalem. He went back up north, and we know that he went back to Nazareth. We know that he was teaching there in a synagogue on the Sabbath. We know that it was there that he opened the Isaiah scroll and he read the words about the spirit of the Lord being upon him. About how he had been anointed by God to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive, the recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are downtrodden. And then you remember how he said, within your hearing today, these things have been fulfilled. And the people were outraged because no prophet is ever accepted in his own town. Those that should have known him the best, they were filled with wrath. So that we know that they took him out to a hill on which the, which the city sat and they, they sought to throw him over the cliff to take his life. But Jesus escaped. He left. He went 40 miles to the northeast to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And we know that it's there that he called the first of his disciples. He called Simon, Peter, and he called Andrew, and he called James, and he called John. And it seems as though Jesus spent the first half of his earthly ministry, something like 18 months, ministering there around the Sea of Galilee and that Capernaum was his home base. Beyond this, it looks as though the house of Simon Peter, that that was the place where Jesus called home. That was a place where he laid down his head to rest. That was a place when after his journeys, he came back for a warm meal and familiar faces. We know that it was there in Capernaum that he was in similarly a synagogue on the Sabbath when he healed a man that had an unclean spirit. And then he walked something like 60 meters. Those of you that went with us on that trip to Jerusalem, 
excuse me, to Israel, you remember the kind of the layout there, the, the foundations of the synagogue is still there in Capernaum. And the foundations of what we're pretty confident are Peter's house, they're still there in Capernaum. And it's, again, it's a very short walk. And so your mind allows you to picture this walk after Jesus has healed this man with an unclean spirit and he, and he makes the journey back to Peter's house and the crowd starts to swell. The scripture tells us, Mark 1.32, that that evening at sundown, after the Sabbath was over and people could travel, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Do you remember what happened the next morning? Before the sun came up, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to be alone with the Father. To spend time in prayer. And Peter and the others, they woke up and they were surely, surely in a bit of a panic. And so they came rushing out to find Jesus and they said, what are you doing? Everyone's looking for you. We've got to strike while the iron's hot. We've got to capitalize on this popularity. But what did Jesus say to them? Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For this is why I've come out. The primary purpose to Jesus' ministry wasn't to be a healer. It wasn't to be a miracle man. It was to be a preacher of the gospel. Proclaim liberty to the captives. And we know more than this, that Jesus was not impressed by crowds. Do, do you remember from our time back in Mark, or maybe from your own studies, you remember how the crowds always served almost as, a, uh, as an extra character in the narrative. Every account, what we would see was there would be Jesus and there would be his true disciples. There would be somebody in need of help. There would be the religious leaders. And then there would be a group just called the crowd. Now, within this crowd, there would have certainly been people from all walks of life, people whose hearts were all over the map. There would have surely been some who were there just to hear what Jesus said. They had heard about him. They had heard about his teaching. They had heard about his healing. And they were just genuinely curious what he had to say. They hadn't decided yet what to make of the guy. There would have been some there who would eventually come to saving faith in him. There would have been some there who were in opposition to Jesus. They were rage listening. They were hate listening. They were seeking to catch him up in a misstep or a, or a blasphemy. But then the, the vast majority of them, it appears to me, the vast majority of them, they were just looky-loos. They were just curious. We've never seen a thing like this. And so they were there for entertainment. They were there for a show. They were there for a, a spectacle or for some entertainment. And the reality is that as you look at this crowd, you can't always tell who's who. See, that's the danger about the evangelical world in which we now live. You realize there's going to be churches all over the country this morning that have turned their church house into a circus. With laser lights and flying musicians and fire coming up from the stage. They've been convinced that that's what the people want. And the truth of the matter is they'll draw a crowd. They'll draw a massive crowd and you'll have no ability to tell who is there because they love the God man, Christ Jesus. And who's there because they love pyrotechnics. So what Jesus would often do then is he would speak a, a hard word, a difficult saying. He would cull it down real quick from thousands upon thousands down to twelve. But what we find for the most part is that the crowd this group called the crowd, they primarily served to be a barrier. 
They were, they were a hindrance to those that wanted to get close to Christ Jesus, and they hindered Jesus' movement, his free movement. So verse 2 says, And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. Luke tells us that this group had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. They'd come from all over. The house is completely filled. You can picture it. People are spilling out the door. You can't even, can't even wedge your way in. But Jesus is not distracted by this. He's not discouraged by the fact that so few in that group have any real abiding interest in what he's come to accomplish. Now, again, I say he would call the group down from time to time. Telling them things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must count the cost. Looking at them and dealing with their sin instead of whatever physical ailment they had. He would continue preaching, knowing that some would believe. But for the most part, he didn't have resentment. He didn't have contempt. He didn't have hatred for this crowd. He had compassion for them. You notice that his, his harsh words were reserved for the religious leaders. His harsh words were reserved for those who claimed the name of God, who claimed to lead others to God, and yet misled them. But for the crowd, he had compassion because he saw them as those who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So he was gentle with them and he was tender and careful with them. So it says that he went on preaching the word to them. Now, in Mark's gospel, what you'll find is whenever it talks about Jesus preaching the word, it means the gospel. This is the word that he came to proclaim. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' message. This was the word that he proclaimed. And so verse 3 tells us that they came. And I was reminded this week how much I love the way that Mark writes. He's got a very staccato fashion, just boom, 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 boom. But the way that he writes and the way that he expresses these pictures, it puts you right in the middle of it. You feel like you're there watching along with the crowd what's happening. And it's like Marcus is reaching through history and pointing you, touching you on the chest and saying, what are you going to do with this Jesus? What do you believe? Who do you say that he is? So he says... That they came, and, and Matthew inserts the word behold there, and behold, they came. That's Matthew's way of, of pointing and saying, look, something unusual, something that should catch your attention. Perk up. He says, and behold, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Matthew and Luke tells us that they carried the man laying on a bed. Now, this would have been something a bit like a, like a nap mat. Maybe a cloth that had been stuffed with hay or something that added just a bit of cushion. This, this isn't Tempur-Pedic or something like this. This has been something that just offered a little bit of cushion, allowed you not to lay in the dirt and keep your head off the ground. A, a bedroll, maybe. A, a, yeah, a nap mat. I like that. And as I was reading the text this week, I couldn't help but think to myself, boy, don't you know that this paralytic man resented that man? Surely he was thankful to have a bed. It's better than not having a bed. It's better than just laying in the dirt. It's better than just laying in the cold. It's better than getting wet every time the ground beneath you is, is covered in dew. But I have to imagine this dude hated this thing. Your bed is, is really, really comfy. 
And a chair is really, really welcoming when you've just spent a hard day on your feet. But it becomes a prison whenever you find yourself confined to it all day long. So I have to imagine that this man, as glad as he was to have a nap mat, as glad as he was to have a bed, I imagine he hated it. I imagine he had come to despise it. But the good news is this man didn't just have a nap mat. He didn't just have a bed. He didn't just have something to lay on. He had four friends too. And so you can picture how they do this. They're carrying their friend to Christ. And I don't know what's an average guy weigh, 180 pounds, something like this. And so 45 pounds a piece, these four friends are each carrying a corner of the bed as they, as they bring him. And, and what's interesting in this text is these dudes never speak. We're never told a word that they say in this entire encounter, but we know what their motives are. Even just reading in Mark's gospel, we know what his motives are. But if you go to Luke, it says that they were trying to bring their friend to Jesus. They had heard who Jesus was. They had heard he was a healer and he was a miracle worker and there was power. Even, even with a word, even with a word, he could heal someone that came and in need of help. They had heard, they had heard how he healed entire towns. Everyone who brought one that was sick, that was demon-possessed, that was lame, that was blind, that was deaf, he received them. So verse 4 says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they weren't making way. They didn't look up and say, Oh, here's a man that clearly needs help. And there's a, there's a man here in this house that can heal this man. They didn't part. They didn't make way. Somebody that had already heard the word didn't back out to allow somebody else a chance. They clambered in. They had their spot and they hunkered in. They made no room for this one that came. And so maybe one guy could weasel your way in. You know what it's like. You're in a crowd and you can turn sideways. You can push. You can prod. You can ask people to excuse you. And you can work your way up to the front of a crowd if you're determined enough. But not four guys carrying one guy on a bed. So Luke tells us that finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. Now, houses, as you probably know, houses in that part of the world were very, very simple, very plain. They're all pretty square. Many of them were two-story, and so what you'd have downstairs is maybe a, a bedroom or a kitchen, something like this. And then if you had a second story, that second story would be just a big open room, a place where people could gather together. But in all of these houses, on the top, what you had was a flat roof. There would have been some wooden beams of some sort, and then there would have been clay that was pressed or, or dried mud that was pressed together maybe to make some tiles and then some thatch or some palm leaves and then some more mud really to kind of make the, the surface there. And so you'd have this flat roof on top, of a, on top of a house. And in that part of the world, at that, well, in that day and age, you didn't have to be in that part of the world, there was no such thing as central air. And so the houses, you can imagine, even with windows, they would get, they'd get muggy, they'd get hot and, and stuffy, especially with, with crowds like this or with large families all living together there. And so whenever you wanted to catch the breeze, whenever you wanted to cool off, you would go up on the roof. And you see this all throughout Scripture. Think about David upon his roof and, and looking down. It's where he sees Bathsheba, but he was up just catching the breeze. He was catching some fresh air. Or you think about Peter. He was up on the roof taking a nap when... The Lord came to him and revealed that no food was any longer unclean, that he had taken down that dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile and, and welcomed us in to his family. And so this was the picture of this, this rooftop that they go up on. And 
There would have been ladders that go up the outside of the house or maybe maybe stair steps, something like this, that led you up there because it was expected that people went up there. So we're not picturing these guys scaling a, a wall that wasn't meant to be scaled, but still it would have been a difficult thing carrying 180 pounds of dead weight and trying not to dump your friend off the side. That wouldn't be good. You kill your friend trying to get him to Christ. And so they would have taken their time. It shows great determination. They didn't give up in the face of the crowd. But the reality is that once they made it to the roof, they still had another problem. How did, this doesn't solve the problem. They're outside. Jesus is inside. Now, we're not told how they figured out exactly where Jesus was. Had they peeked through one of the windows and kind of made note of where Jesus was as he was there teaching before the crowd? Did, did they get up to the roof and, and listen down to try and hear where Jesus' voice was coming from? Did they poke a couple of test holes? To look and figure out where Jesus, we're not told, but they knew about where Jesus was. And so Mark tells us that they removed the roof above him. The, the Greek literally translates, they unroofed the roof. They undid the work that had been done to create the roof. They're pulling away material. I think it's Luke that says they removed tiles. They, they, they're just, they're, they're, they're clawing and they're drilling. They didn't take probably a, a tool set with them. They didn't have a saw. I'm picturing these guys like kids on a beach, literally digging through this roof in order to make way. Now, you've got to picture the size of the hole that would have been necessary. What's a common doorway, like 36 inches, something like this? They couldn't just make a 36-inch hole and let the guy down. That doesn't work. We're told that he's let down on the bed. He's still laying flat. So you've, you've seen people maybe lowering someone that's unconscious, um, and I don't know, down a mountain or off of a building or something, they can just tie a rope around his arms and lower him vertically straight down. That's not what these guys did. They laid him down. So this, he was still laid down on his bed as they lowered him down. So this hole, it would have probably had to be like 36 inches by six feet or something like this as they unroof the roof. Now, I know that we all have varying degrees of not being distracted in worship. As, as we have continued to reform as a church and we have welcomed more and more children and babies into our worship, we've gotten better. We have, and I'm proud of you guys. I'm proud of myself. We've all gotten better at just recognizing the preciousness of babies babbling during worship, hearing those little cries during worship. But, but I'm not stupid. I know that there's times when your, your ear kind of perks up and you get distracted for a minute. You, you, you lose your place, I lose your attention. How much worse if the sheetrock started falling in on my head? As Christ is there preaching in the mud and the thatch and the dirt. And can't you just imagine anybody, everybody that's there in that room yelling up, come on, man, we're doing church. But this was the persistent widow. This was a neighbor that didn't care about what was proper, what was socially accepted. They knew Christ was there and they wanted desperately to get their friend to Jesus. So it says that when they had made the opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Luke tells us that they did pretty well. They let him down right in front of Jesus. So they let, they let their friend down on the nap mat, on the bed. He comes down right in front of Jesus in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, if you read this wrongly, this son can sound a little condescending, right? Son? The, the Greek word here is actually one for just child. There's a, there's a tenderness here. There's a, there's a compassion and an intimacy here. As this man comes and he treats him like he did so many others that came in need. There was a mercy and a grace and a, just a loving tone of patience and kindness. He wasn't inconvenienced. What did he come to do? Preach the gospel. And yet, if even in the preaching of that gospel, he was distracted to help this one who needed help. To help this one whose friends lowered him down in front of him. He still had this compassion and this tone of kindness and meekness and mercy. So he calls him child, calls him son. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is the point at which we really have to slow down. Lest we make a real mess of our theology. You've all heard sermons that have been preached and lessons that have been taught on this passage. And people get all twisted up in knots and start saying things that deep down you know are just not biblical. And so whenever it comes to difficult portions of scripture, whenever it comes to difficult text, we've got to first lock down what do we know to be true? You just got to set your compass. You got to find the North Star. You've got to, you, you've got to know these things right here are true. The, the, the overarching teaching of Scripture, not where this is just said in one place or two place, places. What is the overarching teaching of Scripture? And then you allow the analogy of faith to inform. I figure out what the difficult passages mean based on what the simpler and the more straightforward passages tell me. So we say, I, I know these things to be true. And I know that the God of the universe does not contradict himself in any place. And so whatever these words over here mean, they must be in alignment with these. They must match up with those. So we read that Jesus saw their faith. How do you see faith? Paul tells us in Romans 10, he paints this picture of faith as a belief in the heart. All throughout scripture, we're told about a posture of faith, a positioning of the soul, that it's not an outward thing, that it's possible to do all the outward things and never have faith, to confess him with your lips and never believe in him in your heart. And yet he's saying that he saw their faith. Now, surely we find some help whenever we look to the book of Hebrews. The author there gives us, while I don't think it's a true definition of faith, he gives us some explanation some picture of what faith is. And he says there that Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He goes on then to list for us these heroes of the faith, these Old Testament saints and all the ways they moved forward in obedience driven by that faith. All the difficult things they did carrying out, moving forward, trusting God because of their faith. And we realize that faith really does have three components. The beginning of faith is just the knowledge, the stuff. You can't believe in something if you don't know what the thing is. And so there's just an awareness of the, the thing that you're supposed to place your faith in. And then there's an intellectual assent to that thing. There's the ability to say, yes, I see the thing and I believe it is what I've been told that it is. I believe that Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he has come from heaven to save sinners. I believe that he died on a cross. I believe that he rose again the third day. I believe that he reigns from heaven. I believe that he's coming back in glory someday. So you've got to know those things, and you've got to intellectually believe that those things are true. But there's still another piece. 
I can look at something and know what it is. I can look at something, know what it is, and believe what I've been told that it is and never put my trust in it. Never rest my hope upon it. Never have any real saving faith towards it. And so what we see in this list of these Old Testament saints, these believers before Christ, what we see is they're the ones that lived with assurance that God would and could do what he said he would do. Even though they had not seen yet the thing for which they hoped, they walked with absolute conviction that it would come. Do you remember last week as we talked about Father Abraham with Isaac? We turn to that middle portion of Hebrews chapter 11 where we read that by faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So what do we see here when, when we're told that Jesus saw their faith? He's able to look to these men and tell that they don't just have an awareness of who Jesus is. They don't just have a belief that what's been said about him is true. That they're trusting themselves to him. They're trusting their friend to him that he could heal him. Even though they've not yet seen it. Maybe they had heard about it from others. Maybe they had seen some people walking who had previously been lame. Or they had seen someone who now had ears that worked and had previously been deaf. Deaf. But clearly they believed that Jesus was who they had been told that he was. In a faith like this, it works. A faith like this, it acts. A faith like this unroofs roofs and tears the stuff off of houses to get to him. So it says that Jesus saw their faith. Who's the there? So many people believe that the there here is only the paralytic's four friends. And I see why you would land there because the reality is they're the only ones doing anything. Nobody's saying anything other than Jesus. The paralytic is just laying there. He's not said a word or moved a muscle. His friends are the one doing all the work. And so surely they have to be included in the there. If for no other reason than the fact that Mark doesn't say that Jesus saw his faith. If it says Jesus saw his faith, we would have to figure out which is the his. Which, whose faith did he see? Did he see the paralytic's faith? Did he see one of the friend's faith? Was it somebody else in the crowd? Clearly he's saying their faith, so it must include at least the faith of this man's friends. But I say to you that clearly, based on Jesus' response to this man, he had faith as well. As a matter of fact, I'll take you one step further. I submit to you this morning that we know more about the paralytic man's faith than we do any of his friends based on the response that Jesus has to him. Because verse five, he says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now again, some people have ended up with some really, really wonky theology, but not just slowing down to ask, what does God actually mean by what he's actually said? By submitting to the overarching scripture, the teaching of scripture with regards to what is saving faith and what does it take for a man to have his sins forgiven. And so because of this, you will hear men that will get up and say that this is just a beautiful testimony about the faith of this man's friends. And then they get up meaning well, meaning well. Because if they pastor in a congregation anything like this one, they know that they are surrounded by people 
who desperately plead with God to save people they love. A son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a friend. And so they take this message and they turn it into just trust. Just place your faith in Jesus and Jesus will see your faith on behalf of another and he will save them. You've got to believe for them. If they can't believe, if they won't believe, if they reject Christ, if you would just believe for them, then he will work. He will act. He will forgive their sins. But you know that's not true. You know that Christ Jesus came to live and to die, to fulfill all righteousness and to appease his father's wrath on behalf of his people. And we know that this forgiveness, it can only be received by those who have placed their own repentant faith, trusting repentance in Christ Jesus. That they've got to come to Jesus with more than just an awareness that he's a healer. More than an awareness that they need some physical touch from him. With an awareness that they need spiritual cleansing. With an awareness that they need forgiveness of their sins. And this was the message that Jesus had been proclaiming all along. Repent and believe. This was the message that he had entrusted to the church. What do we read in Acts chapter 2? Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. Without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Over and over and over again from the lips of Christ and all those who follow him, we are told that unless a man comes to true, saving, repentant faith of his own, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no salvation. You've got to believe more than that Jesus is a miracle worker. The reality is you don't have to have any faith whatsoever in Christ Jesus in order for him to heal you. There were those particular times in scripture where Jesus would reference the faith of the one that wanted healing and he would heal them. But there were many, many, many more where he healed men without a word. Men who would never believe anything about him. And so this is always the challenge we find when we come to a text like this. What do you want this Jesus for? Do you want him for some earthly help? Do you want this Jesus that you might be healed or that your marriage might be healed or that your finances might be healed? If you want him for that, you don't have to place faith in him. He might just give it to you. He heals men all the time. He restores things all the time. But it's only the heart that comes with the desire to be cleansed of their sin, trusting that he alone can make them right with God. Only they will find true salvation and just maybe some of the other stuff, too. So this eternal life and this forgiveness of sin, if it only comes through true, personal, saving faith, then clearly that's what this man must have possessed. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar. Either his gospel is a fraud or his promise to this man is a lie. Now, as I considered this week, what, what, what was going on in this paralytic man's heart and in his head? I have to wonder, was he there and his friends had said, we're taking you to Jesus? And he said, sure, I got nothing else to, to do today and I got nothing to lose. And so take me to Christ. I've, I've heard about him and I believe that he's a healer. And perhaps as they were there trying to make their way into the room and maybe as they were climbing up the stairs and maybe as they were waiting for their opportune moment to dig through the roof, did he hear the gospel then? Was that the first moment of his belief or he, had he heard something else before? I'm not 
We're not told. But I could say to you with absolute certainty, this paralyzed man is in heaven today. Because the Lord of the universe saw into his heart. And what he saw in his heart was not just a desire to be healed, but he saw sin and he saw filth and he saw wickedness. But he also saw repentance and he saw faith. So he looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven, expunged, removed, canceled, thrown far away. Do you long to hear words such as this? How much would you give to have Christ Jesus look you in the eye and say, son, daughter, child, your sins are forgiven. But do you remember how Jesus told his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away? It is a blessing to you that I don't stay, but that I go to my father. Because when I go to my father, I will send my spirit. And by my spirit, I will do a work. And through that work, you will come to hear these words for yourself. So I declare before you this morning, if you've come in here and you've got true, repentant faith, hear these words. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No less authority than Christ Jesus standing before the paralytic man. Do you understand? Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So these these scribes, they were experts in the law. A number of them would have surely been Pharisees. Some of them were not. These weren't just scribes the way we think of scribes. People just copy down the scriptures. These were men who would have been experts in what God's law had to say and what forgiveness of sin really took. And so they make this statement. The reality is that they were absolutely right on one point and absolutely wrong on the other. They were right in the fact that no one can forgive sins but God alone. Not only because God alone has the power and the authority, but because all sin is ultimately against God. Isn't this what King David said in Psalm 51? God, against you and you only have I sinned. Who did he sin against? He sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the people of Israel and his soldiers and his own body. He had sinned against countless people, and yet he recognized that the heart of it all, ultimately, Lord, it's against you and you only that I've sinned. Now, it's true that whenever he cries out, that he is a sinner, that God uses a man, a prophet, Nathan, to look at him and say, you won't die. God has taken your sins away from you. But that's a mediated authority because ultimately it wasn't against Nathan that he had sinned. Only God can forgive sins because only God has been sinned against. That's why they say he's blaspheming. He's claiming for himself a right that belongs only to God. Clearly unaware of the fact that the one they stood before was God, Emmanuel, God with us. Had they known this, they would have fallen down on their faces and worshiped. Had they truly recognized this, it should have driven them to worship and to honor and to praise. We will come back tonight and we'll talk about the wise men. I've never taught on the wise men, but we're gonna talk about the wise men today and their bringing of gifts and their worshiping of the Christ child, the one true king. That would have been the only proper response. But instead, they called him a blasphemer. Verse 8. 
And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, just as Jesus, the scripture says that he came in the power of the spirit. So just as Jesus in the spirit could see the heart of this paralytic man and see true saving faith, he could see the hearts of these men and see their unbelief. Matthew says, why do you think this evil in your heart? Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, to forgive sins or to heal a paralytic, both of those things are impossible with man. No ability to do any of these things. And for God to heal a man is not a hard thing. He does not grunt. He doesn't strain. He doesn't sweat. The forgiveness of sins is incredibly costly, but that's what Christ Jesus had come to do. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of his blood. But Jesus isn't asking here which is easier to do. He's asking which is harder to say. And now there's myriad of thoughts about what Jesus is trying to get at here. And really there seems to be two, in my mind, there's really just two leading contenders behind what he means. The first is, it is far easier to look at a man and say, son, your sins are forgiven. Because this is a spiritual unseen reality and nobody can prove it. Nobody can call you a liar. Nobody else can see the, the heart of this man. And so how can they disprove you? But you look at a paralyzed man and say, rise, get up and walk. You better put up or shut up. They're going to know pretty quickly whether you're a charlatan or not. I say that, but there's many people being duped all around the world today. But you get the point. It's much more difficult to call a man to give this outward manifestation of the power that you claim to have versus this inward and unseen reality. But, but then there's another way in which I think it is easier to say to a man, get up, rise and walk than it is to say, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's because no one is ever offended by healing. No one ever gets upset by Jesus feeding 5,000 or healing a blind man or a man that can't, can't hear. And isn't that the world that we live in? No one's ever offended by a sermon that says, Jesus wants to bless you. Jesus wants to give you a happy life. Jesus wants to fix all your problems. But you stand up and begin talking about your need for forgiveness of sins. No, thank you. Who are you to call me a sinner? Who are you to claim that I need forgiveness? Give me the Jesus that makes my life better. No one is offended by healing, not even these scribes and these Pharisees. Not only because it is not dealing with the hearts of men, only dealing with their outward physical needs, but also because you don't have to be God to do miracles. Moses did miracles. Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead. Judas cast out demons and healed people. Now, of course, this was all a power that was from outside of them. This was all a power that was not in and of themselves. But these religious leaders, they didn't doubt the fact that Jesus did the things that he claimed to do. They surely had seen much of it with their own eyes. The question was, what do these miracles mean? You remember what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus? He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
But for the religious leaders, their response is, surely you've got a demon. Surely you've come in the power of Beelzebub to do this work that you do. So that's why Jesus was consistently teaching them. No, it's by the power of the Spirit of God. He says, you, you know that the kingdom is upon you because it's by the Spirit of God that I do these things, that I cast out demons, that I heal. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's forcing a crisis. He, he tended to do that. He forces this interaction where he says, you can't any longer just say that I'm a healer. You can't any longer just say that I'm a good teacher. I'm claiming to you that I'm God. Now do something with it. But that you may know, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He uses, Jesus uses here his favorite title for himself, the, the Son of Man. And now if you ever were to do, and many of you surely have, you do a, uh, just a word study, biblical study on that title, the Son of Man, you know that sometimes in the Old Testament it just means a dude, just means a man. And you'll hear people that will say, well, when Jesus says, when we, talk, when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, that talks about his divinity. And when it talks about him as the Son of Man, it points to his humanity. But that is not the way Jesus uses this term. He's pointing back to this messianic term, surely, that we see in Daniel chapter 7. When we see one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, given everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So in short, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to show you. I'm going to validate my message. And that's what the signs and the miracles were for. That you may know. That you may know. So he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. That's the purpose to the signs. That's the purpose to the miracles. Jesus would say, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. You remember when word came to Jesus that John the Baptist was struggling a little bit there in prison. He's saying, are you the one or am I supposed to wait for another? And he says, go tell them what you've seen. Go tell them the works that I've done. Wait, 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 wait a minute. But Elijah did works. Moses did works. His apostles would did work, do works. But clearly for those with eyes of faith and those that had heard his message, his works validated what he said about himself. Proved that he was not a blasphemer. Proved that he was not a liar. He says that you may know I'm going to do these works. Who's he saying this to, by the way? The doubters. He's saying to the whole crowd, of course. But it was the scribes who were unbelieving in his heart. And he says, I'm looking to you and I'm showing you that I can do this. That you may know. You don't have an excuse. This is why we see Jesus as he is speaking these woes over these towns in Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. For if the mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Tyre or in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you that the day of judgment will be better than, for them than it will be for you. You've seen the works. You've received the light. I've proven to you who I am, and yet still you reject. Therefore, the day of judgment and the fires of hell will be worse. He's forcing a crisis.
And I want you to think about what would have happened if Jesus, like, why didn't he do this in reverse? Because don't you know, he saw it in the man's heart. The man wasn't offended when he said, son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say sins. Free. I'm a son of Abraham. Never been anyone's slave. It was not the man's response. And so I have to imagine the man's laying there on the bed just rejoicing, having heard this. Maybe even forgotten about his own legs. But maybe his friends are like, oh, wait. We went through all this and maybe Peter's going, but the hole in my roof, man, was that for nothing? But think about what would have happened if he would have done it in the opposite order. If he heals the man and then he goes running off. And I thought this the first time I preached it and I still think it. And it's not funny ha-ha. It's not a funny ha-ha thought, maybe a funny ironic thought. But, but I just like to, pick, I don't like to picture this. But I can't help but keep picturing this. Jesus heals the guy. He gets his mat. He runs outside and he gets kicked by a donkey and now he's paralyzed again. You realize Lazarus died, Lazarus died again, right? And if this guy didn't die in some tragic accident, at the end of his life, he was laying in a bed again. What does it profit a man if he gains his life and loses his soul? What, what? He said, I'm going to treat this thing in the proper order. In the order of priority, this is what you need. And there are many that received healing from the hands of God. And it amounted to nothing. He speaks about what those life looks like for those type of people in Amos chapter 3 verse 18. It says, it is darkness and not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's the picture I just saw in my head. See, I'm biblical. He fleed from a lion and he got ate by a bear. Or he went into a house and leaned his hand against a wall and a scorpion bit him. Jesus looked at this man, and Matthew tells us that he looked at this man, and he said, Son, be of good cheer before he healed his legs. Son, be of good cheer. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. You came here for new legs, and instead you found a cleansed heart. And don't you know that man looks backwards for the rest of his life? Don't you know that man looks backwards from eternity to day, and he says, Praise God. For my paralysis. Praise God for my legs that did not work. Praise God for this bed that I was enslaved to. Praise God for my four friends that brought me to Christ. Praise God that he did not settle for my physical needs. Praise God that in Christ Jesus he came and forgave me of all my sins. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. If you would have polled that room after the fact and said, what have you never seen anything like? There would have surely been some that said, a man who claimed to be God? Never seen anything like this. There would have been some who would have said, a crippled man that gets up and runs away? But maybe there was a small remnant. Maybe there were just a small few that recognized what they had just seen. We spent a month now meditating on Christ. 
We spent a month now meditating on what it means for him to be fully God and fully man, not just in his coming, but as he reigns today. We will come back tonight and we will look at a more traditional Christmas picture and the wise men coming. And then we will come back, God willing, tomorrow morning. And we're going to look there at the young boy, Jesus, in the temple and the amazement that his parents beheld as they as they saw him there. But for this morning, the challenge before you is, what are you going to do and what have you done with this Christ? Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the picture that we have beheld here. We thank you for the works that Christ Jesus has done and the evidence that they give that he is truly your son. But we know, Father, that those evidences, those proofs will only stand against us in judgment someday if we've not truly turned and repented, placed all of our weight and faith in him. Father, we praise you this morning that we know that our salvation does not rest in the power of our faith. That if we had faith like a seed of a mustard or like the tiniest of a spider web, Father, we trust that the power rests in the Christ. In the object of our faith and not in the strength of our faith. So, Father, we come this morning, some of us rejoicing that you have implanted, you have worked, you have wrought that faith in our hearts. Asking that you would further strengthen it. For those who have not yet come to this place. Would you do that work? Would you come by the power of your spirit? Would you give them new life? Spiritual birth. Hearts of flesh. Eyes that see. Ears that hear. Bring saving faith where it's needed. God we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.